We've got two readings today. The first one, as you can see, is on page 853, which is from Hebrews, and it's in chapter 12, and I'm reading from verse 18 through to 29. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him, they warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So if you'd like to turn now to Daniel... Chapter 2, which is on page 625, we have the Old Testament reading. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut to pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. 
So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hanai, Mishmael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king. I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were laying there, O king, your mind turned to the things to come, and the revealing of mysteries showed you what was going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than any other living man, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation, and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the whole statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he's placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherefore they live, he has made you, sorry, wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. 
Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so will this be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished him many gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. There's a common view of history out there that goes something like this. We know more today than we ever have. We've left behind the stupidities of the past. We're at the top and we're only going upwards from here on in. Have you ever come across that kind of view of of history? And of course, there's a lot of truth in this. You know, we know these days that sticking leeches all over people probably doesn't do a lot. I'm sure there's some hipsters out there who think it's cool. We know the the Earth's a ball, it's not flat. But to jump from our greatly improved knowledge in, in many areas of life to the assumption that we now automatically know better, that just by existing when we do, we're qualified to throw out and mock the past and presume we know best, that seems a flawed view of history. You see this interpretation of history when you hear people justifying a course of action simply because it's what we want today. So when you hear people say things like this, that kind of thinking doesn't belong in the 21st century. That's not an argument, that's a view of history. That history has marched us to a place where we have the right to ignore, ridicule and rule over the past as a collection of stupidities. This interpretation of history, it's it's pretty common out there really, but I reckon people are actually starting to feel nervous about it. Because if we're at the pinnacle and we're marching forward, there's a few pretty big spinners being thrown into the works. Like, how do we fit September 11 and Al-Qaeda, and and ISIS, and the the mess of Syria, into this view of history. People try, they say that this is the last-ditch efforts of the old world, trying to halt the progress of the new enlightened world, 
maybe. But it's scary how easy it seems to be for these people like ISIS to influence all sorts of people. And it's scary how hard it is to find an answer to these problems, even though we're so advanced. And then there's another spinner in the works, the global financial crisis, when suddenly everything that we've taken for granted in the world comes to a grinding halt. And if this could happen and nobody saw it coming or nobody paid any attention to it, what's to stop it from happening again, but next time being worse? You know, some people report a recession in Australia even as soon as next year. John Anderson, just this week, a couple of us were at a um, breakfast with him, he reckons we're living in a dream world, borrowing from the future of our children. That doesn't fit with the dream of history marching us forward. Or global warming seems to make a mockery of this idea, where we can't even agree if there's a problem, and then when we do agree, we can't agree what to do about it. Then there's the more personal spinners in the works. Why can't my kids ride their bikes out in the street till it gets dark like I used to when I was a kid? Why don't kids grow up knowing how to look us in the eye when they, when they talk to you? Why does Facebook actually seem to disconnect me from the real world and make me more discontent? When people are liking my stuff, why does it only seem to make me less secure and to have a greater and greater need for more and more affirmation from people? Or another spinner, why is it that I feel less able to speak my mind? Why is there less freedom of speech now than 20 years ago? How did the ideologies of a few take over? And even though we can vote, why does it feel like we can't affect real change? Why is, is the world feeling political disempowerment? The idea that history marches forward is one interpretation of history, and there are many others. But today we have the privilege of seeing God's interpretation of history. And on the one hand, it's far more negative than this idea that history marches onwards and upwards. But on the other hand, it's far, far more positive. In our chapter today, we see that God is the great revealer of the secrets of history. Look at the start of the story with me in 2 verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, troubled and he couldn't sleep. Nebuchadnezzar is someone who's reached the top. His kingdom's huge, his capital is, is beautiful and it's the cultural centre of, of the known world at the time. And what happens when you reach the top? Well, you start to wonder what's next and you start to worry about what's next. So maybe it's no wonder that one night Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that worries him. But dreams are funny things, aren't they? Sometimes they can be completely strange and meaningless. A friend of mine told me that one night he had a dream, he was a dragon and he woke up the next morning with sore shoulders from flapping his little dragon wings. <laughs> I'm not sure that there's much meaning that you can extract from a dream like that. But other dreams, they seem so important and so meaningful that it feels like someone's trying to tell us something. Back then, they absolutely thought that, that dreams, and especially the dreams of important people, like kings, were a way that the gods communicated a message to you. The magicians and the enchanters, the sorcerers and the astrologers, they had books dedicated to decoding dreams. 
So when Nebuchadnezzar calls them in, they say in verse 4, tell your servants the dream and we'll interpret it. But Nebuchadnezzar, he was so struck by this particular dream. He was so sure that it was unlike any other dream that he'd ever had. And so much like someone was trying to tell him something important, that he goes to extreme measures to make sure that he finds out its correct meaning. He asked for something that no king before him had ever asked for. Let's have a look at his tactic in verse 5 to make sure he gets the right interpretation. This is what I've firmly decided. If you don't tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut in pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. His attitude probably has a bit of... um, explains why the name Nebuchadnezzar is not very popular anymore. This is such an unheard of request that, that the wise men just don't get it. They're still thinking, of course we can interpret it, just, just give us the dream. So the king clarifies the situation for them in verse 9. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream and I'll know that you can interpret it for me. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's tactic, it's, it's pretty far down the end of evil tyrant. But it's pretty sensible in one sense, isn't it? There's only one way he can be sure that he's getting the genuine interpretation and that's if they can do the impossible and tell him what the dream was. But of course, there's just one problem with his evil plan. No one on earth can do it. It's put his advisors in a hopeless situation. Look at what they say in verse 11. And notice actually, as we look at this, if you can see what they accidentally let slip... What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods and they don't live among humans. The king's absolutely furious with what they say here because of what they accidentally let slip. They're supposed to be his advisors because they're supposed to be the ones with a connection to the gods. And they've just let slip their frauds. When the pressure's on, their gods can't deliver because they know d- deep down that the truth is They have zero access to the gods and we know those gods don't even exist. It's a hopeless situation and it looks like Daniel and his companions are going to get caught up in this hopeless situation too because the king, having figured out that they're all frauds, orders that all the wise men of Babylon be killed. And the first that Daniel and his friends learn about this is when Arioch, the chief executioner, knocks on on their door looking for them. But while the situation's hopeless for the wise men, it's not for Daniel and his friends. Daniel uses tact and wisdom with Arioch and, and then with the king to get more time. And then what does he do? He goes to his friends and verse 18, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. The difference between Daniel and his friends and the wise men is that Daniel and his friends have got a real connection with the real God and they know that their God is a God who reveals secret things. Well, God answers their prayers and He reveals to Daniel the dream He revealed to Nebuchadnezzar and He also reveals to Daniel its interpretation. See, Daniel doesn't need to look up any books. There's no room for human wisdom to interpret it. He just has to pass it on. Now, Arioch, when he takes Daniel to the king, he says, 
I have found a man among the exiles of Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. He doesn't mention that he found Daniel when he was trying to chop his head off at the time and really had nothing to do with it. You can't blame him for putting his best foot forward. But Daniel has a completely different approach. When King Nebuchadnezzar says to him in verse 26, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel says, no. And you could imagine Nebuchadnezzar getting ready to be absolutely furious. Look at what Daniel says in verse 27. No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. For some reason, God's chosen to reveal to Nebuchadnezzar his secret plan for history. And of course, it's, it's not just for Nebuchadnezzar in the end. We're reading it now, 2,600 years later. It was for God's people back then, and it's for God's people in all ages. God is the great revealer of the secrets of history. We don't have to invent our ideas of where this world's heading. God makes it known in history. The king has dreamt about a great statue made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay, being smashed apart by a rock that grows into a great mountain. Daniel explains the meaning that God's given him. The statue represents the kingdoms of the world. Each different material represents a different kingdom. And King Nebuchadnezzar really has reached the top. He's the gold head. The other materials represented other great kingdoms that were to follow. But notice, rather than getting better and better, they go from gold to silver to bronze to iron and clay. And in the end, all these kingdoms would be completely undone by a rock. And here we see God revealing the greatest secret of history. God is going to set up His own kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's not given exact time frames, but he's given a clear overview of God's plan for history. The seemingly endless cycle of nation rising and taking over nation is going to come to an end. Something big's coming. There are going to be four kingdoms and then God's going to set up His own kingdom. This is God's view of history. It's more negative than we might want to accept because God says human kingdoms decline and they're all destined for the same endpoint, to be completely destroyed. But at the same time, God's view of history is more positive than we can imagine because He reveals He's going to do something completely different to the same old disappointing kingdom after disappointing kingdom that we see. Did you notice what God's kingdom is going to be like? It's going to be like a small rock. And this brings us to our third point. God's kingdom is completely unlike all other kingdoms. And in fact, it's going to obliterate them. Have a look at verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. God's kingdom is something completely different to all the other kingdoms of this world. Notice how it's not a new layer to all the kingdoms. It's not a human work at all, we read. 
And did you see what material represents this kingdom? It's not gold or silver or bronze. It's not going to be showy and and self-serving. It's not even carved into a proud shape. It's a rock and it starts small. But this rock is going to crush not just one kingdom, but it's going to crush the very structure of self-seeking human rule itself, so that one day no trace of godless human rule will be left. Look back at verse 35. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. The kingdom of God, it might start small and unimpressive, but it not only grows into a great mountain, it fills the whole earth so that there's no room for any other kingdom. This, by the way, is God alluding to Mount Zion, the mountain where His own temple is. Where God meets with His people is going to so fill the whole earth, this whole world, this whole earth is going to be the place where God dwells with His people. Could you imagine the comfort that this vision must have brought to Daniel and his friends and all of God's people in exile? I mean, everywhere they turned, what did they see? But Nebuchadnezzar's gold head smugly looking at them, proud, asserting his greatness, his right to rule, his power, his magnificence. But this vision says that God has got a very different view of history to Nebuchadnezzar's, more negative and more positive. More negative because Nebuchadnezzar's strength won't last forever. Other disappointing human kingdoms were going to take his place. But more positive because it was only a matter of time before God was going to set up his own spectacular kingdom in history. God's view of history must have been a fantastic comfort to Daniel. And isn't it the same for us? Only it's more of a comfort And it's even more thrilling because what God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar as something to happen in the future, we look back and we see most of it already happened and we see some of it happening right now and only one part of it still to happen in the future. See, as we look back, we can recognize the four kingdoms as Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, as Greece, and then Rome. And as we look back, we can see that the rock that crushes the kingdoms of this world and and brings about God's own kingdom is Jesus Christ. Like the rock in the dream, Jesus seems small and unimpressive. He doesn't start a, a human empire or wage any wars or build any monuments. In fact, what's the most memorable thing that Jesus ever does? He dies on a cross at the hands of one of the very empires that God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. It's weak. It's pathetic. Unless God opens your eyes to see history the way He sees it. Because in Jesus' death, God crushes the foundation on which every other human kingdom builds itself. See, what are the ways of the human kingdoms of this world. It's pride, arrogance, selfishness and forcefulness and violence. But the way of God's kingdom is completely different. 
Jesus blows apart the ways of this world because he shows that God's way is to serve. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus calls his disciples together and he explains that God's kingdom is so different to, to the kingdoms of this world. He says, For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. The very rock which crushes the kingdoms of this world does it by being crushed for us. See, God's kingdom is completely unlike the kingdoms of this world. And God's kingdom in Jesus is bringing all these other rules to an end. Nebuchadnezzar didn't get to see all the details that we get to see looking back at history. But of course, he's, he's still blown away by what God's revealed to Daniel. And in that moment, at least, he recognises the significance of what all this means. In verse 47, he says, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. He's made known his plan for history to Nebuchadnezzar. And you'd think that would change him, wouldn't you? But you just got to read the next chapter where Nebuchadnezzar strangely has this idea to build a gold statue. That's all gold, this one, or the chapter after that. And you realise that Nebuchadnezzar hasn't really grasped the significance of this. But we can be the same, can't we? I mean, first, if, if you've not brought yourself under God's rule, then you've missed the significance of this. Either you belong to the, the kingdom of human self-rule that's destined to be crushed, or you've migrated to what God's doing in history, His kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar didn't migrate. He believed it. He was amazed by it. He might have even loved it, loved the idea of it. But he didn't repent and put his faith in God. And we can do the same as, as, as him. You might believe God's interpretation of history. You might be amazed by it. You might even love it. But until you, you turn away from self-rule and surrender to Jesus, you're not a part of it. Who calls the shots in your life? If you realise that, that something contradicts Jesus' right to rule you, what happens next? If it doesn't trigger a struggle where you fight to surrender every part of your life to Jesus, then you haven't migrated. If you've somehow got the idea that you can be a part of God's kingdom and, and not obey Jesus, you've got the wrong idea. Jesus is the rock that was crushed for you. He's earned the right to call the shots. Until we give up trying to rule ourselves, we just haven't migrated to God's kingdom. But most of us here have done that. You know, there, there are parts of our lives that are trying to turn back, of course, and there are parts of our lives that never properly turned in the first place. But with God's help, we're fighting them. That, that's what it looks like to come under Jesus' rule. But I reckon, and, and I could be wrong, I reckon we're still prone to miss the significance of God's plan for history. 
Before our, our very eyes, God's kingdom is growing in our world. Not in parliaments, not with armies, but in the hearts of people as people migrate to Jesus, as they hear of the rock that was crushed for them and as they swear allegiance to Him. This is not something in our future. This is something that's happening right now. God's at work right now building His kingdom. This is what God cares about. This is what history's all about in His mind. His kingdom growing. Till that time in our future, when his kingdom occupies this entire world. I think we struggle to feel the significance of this. I know I struggle. Recently, someone gave $20,000 to see one of the church plants happen. And I was staggered. My reaction was to feel like that's, like that's too much money. Like that's crazy. Why was that my reaction? Because I struggled to see the significance that God sees in His kingdom. When one of our missionaries was back just a couple of months ago, I had a a cup of tea with her. And she was telling me about how dangerous it is where she is and how any day she could die. For real. Everything within me wanted to say, just come home. Why? Because I struggled to see the significance that God sees in His kingdom. A few years ago, I lived next door to a couple who didn't know God. Lived next to them for a few years. When they got married, we gave them a Bible. When they had a child, we gave them a kid's Bible. Had them around, tried to chat, but I never pushed past that pain line where I actually made things awkward and told them about Jesus. Why? Because I struggled to see the significance that God sees in His kingdom. God's revealed what history is all about. This is it. It's His kingdom growing till Jesus returns and brings God's kingdom here for good. Now, we might struggle to see the significance of this, but God doesn't. God cares so much about bringing his kingdom because he cares so much about people. See, he sees people, he sees us, and he sees us harassed by the kingdoms of this world. He sees us in desperate need of his kingdom, where that harassment will cease forever, where sickness disappears, where domestic violence stops where failed ideologies and social experiments are abandoned, where there won't be any vain politicians, no racism, no poverty, no loneliness, none of these things that harass us, no destructive addictions, no manipulation, no no being used by other people, no pain where there'll be nothing that can harm us and harass us anymore. Because all of these things will be crushed forever. People might look like they've got it together. Our friends, our colleagues and neighbours, they might look like they've got it all together. But they don't. They're harassed by the horrible effects of the kingdoms of this world, even if they don't know it. See, the reason it feels like there are spinners in the works of histories is because there are. God's kingdom 
that's going to bring all that to a distant memory. But people need to hear about it. And when you really get the significance of what God's doing in history, that's when we find ourselves being the people who want to tell them about it. Let's pray for that. Lord, you are the revealer of mysteries. You have made known your secret plan. And we are so thankful, Lord, that you have made it known to us. And you have made a way for us to be a part of it. Through Jesus, the rock that was crushed for us. So that all these kingdoms, harmful kingdoms, could be crushed. Lord, capture our hearts. Help us to see the enormous significance of what you're doing, that when you look at history, you see your kingdom growing. This is what you're on about. This is what you love. This is what's best for people. This is what you want. Lord, help us to want it too, not out of guilt, but out of the great joy of what's coming. And Lord, as we grasp the significance of it, help us to want to be those who call others to leave behind the kingdoms that don't do us any good. And to come to Jesus, the King who serves us. We ask this in his name. Amen. Living for God's kingdom in this broken world can be awkward, can be costly and frightening, but God has revealed history.